everyone. This is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and with me, as always, is my co-host Meredith Carey. Hello. Our guest this week is the author, activist, and television host, Padma Lakshmi. Her Hulu show, Taste the Nation, helped us travel through our screens when it was released last summer, taking viewers across the US to meet the people who have shaped what American food is today. And a second season is set to be released on Hulu later this year. Plus, she's hosting a brand new season of Top Chef, which premieres on April 1st. Thanks for joining us, Padma. Hi, thanks for having me. So I would say my first ever Zoom interview was with you in March of last year, about one week into lockdown. And I think it's safe to say that neither of us probably understood what the rest of 2020 was going to look like. How has the past year been for you? It's been surreal. Like for most people, I've actually been trying to write about it because I'm guest editing the Best American Travel Writing Series for last year, this year. And I find myself really stymied for words to just give name and and shape to the sort of emptiness and dread that we've all felt. And I think the hardest thing has been not knowing. In many ways, when you spoke with me last year, you know, just about around this time, I was probably a much happier person because I, like most people, thought, oh, you know, this will be probably two, three weeks tops. It'll be a nice enforced vacation for all of us. And I'll be able to spend all this time with my daughter, which, which um, you know, I did do, obviously, um, which has been great, but has also, you know, been very illuminating in the sense that, you know, I always thought that I maybe would love to teach because I love children and things like that. But after going through homeschooling with Krishna, my 11-year-old, then 10-year-old, I realized that, you know, teachers are sort of these superheroes, which I always knew because they affected my life and my learning so much. But now I see how actually hard it is to do the job that they don't get paid enough to do, you know, as well. And so there have been a lot of things like that that have been very humbling for all of us. Um, Thankfully, I didn't get sick and nor did anyone in my immediate family. But I did, you know, I did know people who passed away. And that's been sort of hard because I know it intellectually has happened. I know those people are gone, but I haven't, like many of us, been able to mourn or console the people who are closer to them or, you know, any of those absurd things that we as human animals, you know, human beings do use to mark our own culture and society and things like that. So it's it's been a little bit like flailing in the dark. I mean, you're Turkish, right? I am, yes. I remember our interview, yeah, um, <laughs> because I love Turkish food and I, I've only been to Turkey once, but yeah. I actually remember very clearly that you said that you ha- you and your daughter had made a chocolate cake. And I don't know why <laughs> that is stuck in my head, but I think it was because it was such a comforting image at a time where we really needed comforts. Yes, I suppose it's my version of Marie Antoinette, right? So like, when when in crisis, make cake, you know? <laughs> um, throughout these past 12 months, do you think your relationship with food or home cooking in particular or cake has changed while being yes, grounded Yes, to all of home? it. Yeah. Yes, yes, to all of it. One thing that I was always a firm believer in, but the pandemic has made me 
put into daily practice is to not waste anything. There were all those months when, you know, you didn't know what you were going to have access to, didn't know what you were going to find. And so, you know, we made stock out of everything. Like if there, you know, if it was a meat product, we saved it in a separate bag and froze it. If it were like scallion tops, you know, all these things that, you know, you'd probably chuck, right? But we put into another bag and kept that in the crisper. And, you know, when there was just like a tablespoon or two of quinoa left over, I put it on a baking tray and doused it with olive oil and made, you know, some kind of gravel to give my (laughs) salad crunch, you know, when I didn't have croutons or I don't know what I was thinking. But, you know, I started I started candying nuts. I'm not sure why I thought, you know, that (laughs) would be necessary. But um, it's so, you know, I really did become... Um, very concerned with the minutiae of domestic life. You know, I sort of couldn't have big thoughts. Um, I was searching for information when there was none, like many of us. And so I became obsessed about the pantry. And I'm always obsessed a little bit about grocery shopping. You know, it's it's my jam. Like, I can go into Chanel and come out empty-handed, also because it's so fucking expensive in Chanel. <laughs> but, you know, if I go to an ethnic market or any kind of food market, you know, in any part of the world, whether it's at home or while I'm on some trip, I come back with all sorts of sweet seeds and twigs and powders and spices and things. And and so I've always been like that, but I became obsessive about, first I alphabetized my spice drawer, but then I realized that that was impractical. And then I arranged it by regions so that I had, you know, all of my dried Mediterranean herbs in one row and all of my Indian spices in a second and I had like a row, which I still do, embarrassingly enough, a whole row of just different kinds of chili powder, you know, from Urfa to, you know, um, Szechuan to, you know, everything, everything. You could, Hungarian, then smoked paprika, then Spanish pepper. It was just obnoxious because those were the things that I could travel. You know, I am at my very core a wanderer who needs to wander and I was unable to do so and still have not gone anywhere that hasn't involved a car, you know, and it was such a stark contrast from the year before a filming where I had just been hither and yon and, you know, on a plane every week and happily so. That is the existence that I have just from necessity because of work and also family life when I was growing up. I'm used to that life, you know, I'm used to doing that. And so staying still is like a fish who doesn't swim. Because you couldn't travel and you couldn't move, did you find yourself turning to certain dishes or certain flavours to try and transport yourself, not even for something new, but for something familiar? Yes, I began to cook a lot of very simple vegetarian recipes that I grew up with. You know, I made a lentil and coconut dish, not with coconut milk, which is easy, but actual shredded fresh coconut that I scoured, you know, markets for um, a great peril to my own health, you know, in the near vicinity because I was going to don on these fucking masks and have fresh coconut because it made me feel closer to my family in India. You know, my granny is 90 and I haven't seen her 
um, for over a couple of years because I thought I would get to see her when all the traveling for Taste the Nation and Top Chef were done. And then, of course, we were all grounded. So, you know, I'm hoping that's really my first order of business when it is safe to travel. You were talking about how much travel you were doing in 2019. And in 2020, you, you did manage to film a season of Top Chef. What was filming in Portland like amid the pandemic? It was painful, to be honest. It's always a joy to come into that Top Chef kitchen and see, you know, all those fresh and panicked faces <laughs> at the, you know, the first day of a first quick fire. But this time the panic infected me because I, you know, I have 150 crew members that you don't see that I was really worried about. And, you know, if I thought I was in quarantine here in New York before I went to work, the lockdown that I experienced and my family, you know, because I wasn't going to leave Krishna um, or her father, you know, who needed to see her too. So we all made an agreement that we would just go there. And so they were also subjected to it. It was like an incredible lockdown. I was tested every other day. There were only a handful of people that were allowed in my zone um, because I film every day. And if I got sick, then the whole show, you know, everybody lays down their tools, you know. So it, it was also to keep everybody safe around me who, who agreed to go back to work. Because also I've been working with these people on Top Chef. I mean, you know, the head of the art department, all of the um, lighting department, the sound guys, you know, I've been working with them, a lot of them for 15 years. And so on the one hand, it was really comforting to see them. But on the other hand, it was a bit torturous because I wasn't allowed to touch them. I would wave to them from across the room. We would stand literally what would amount to across a six lane street and just look at each other and talk on the phone. It was better than nothing, you know, I was really, really happy to put myself and all of those people back to work. But I think it was really hardest um, on, on a lot of, you know, the people who had to leave their families behind. I think that my producers did a really great job of being very creative with the parameters that we had to work under, the new parameters for safety and health, and actually make the show very interesting. And one way we did that, for example, is that, you know, obviously we couldn't have a guest judge come in, a new guest judge every single day. There would be no way to test for that. And so we had this small sort of Supreme Court panel of judges, you know, that were past contestants that were, you know, had done really well in the show, made it to finale or one or whatever. And they were like our resident jury. And so they had all of the meals with us. They had all of the um, quick fire dishes with me often. And then one of them would come from that table and be my guest judge. And it was wonderful to be able to spend time with all of these chefs from different seasons together. It was in a way a family reunion I wouldn't have ever been able to have if it weren't for the extenuating circumstances. So, um, you know, staying on the subject of filming, Taste the Nation's been renewed for a second season. Yes. Where will 
the show be taking you this time around? And I'm also interested to know, with a new administration in office, what conversations will you be prioritizing? Sure. Um, well, Taste the Nation has a tenth of the crew that Top Chef does, but it has other perils because of the nature of the show. So Top Chef is containable, even with that big crew in one space, whereas Taste the Nation depends on an intimacy with strangers, right? Um, I go into a city, I embed myself, but I embed myself really just for a week. So um, there's, it's going to be hard to test and make sure that, you know, as soon as someone doesn't, as soon as someone finishes testing that they don't go into a bus or a car that's infected. So uh, foremost, want to make sure that the participants of our show and our crew are safe. We are working out those details now. I don't want to film if I can't do the show and deliver the same quality of that intimacy that I did in the first season. I worked so hard. It took me so long to get Taste Nation even made. Um, and I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. So I want to preserve that. And it's painful for me because I don't want the trail to go cold. You know, I want, uh, we've established a really beautiful fan base that's that's very effusive and I don't, want to squander that but at the same time I don't want to squander it either by delivering a half-made product so I hope you know I heard that Biden thinks that most Americans will be vaccinated by end of May I'm you know touching wood that that is the case so that we can go back on the road for so many reasons other than work of course um, and then we'll see. We'll see what stories we want to tell. I don't think, unfortunately, that the change of administration is going to all of a sudden evaporate the many issues that we really still need to excavate. Um, I think there's a lot to talk about still. You know, you're talking about the loyal fan base that you guys have developed and how proud you are of the show. When you think about planning for this second season, with all the viewers having experienced the pandemic in some way in the past year, what do you think your viewers are going to want out of a second season that they maybe wouldn't have before the pandemic? Well, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I, you know, I could have never predicted the conditions in which um, the show would come out, you know, when we made it, none of us knew what it was like to be in a pandemic. I think it hit a nerve um, also because we were being told a lot of lies and vitriol about immigrants. And most people in America like have experienced life with immigrants, you know, either as their neighbor or their school teacher or their colleague. And so we know that that's not our experience, you know, that vitriol of murderers and rapists and all this stuff. And so I think people were pleased to be able to see a deeper look at those who they pass on the street, if nothing else, or, you know, the backstory of the woman who um, runs their favorite Thai restaurant or whatever. You know, we love, Americans love to eat from all over the world, but we don't often think of the people behind those dishes and who makes them and the implications of that. And I think, you know, we did 10 episodes that were half an hour each. 
Um, so you really only have five hours of programming. I think there's a lot to mine still. Um, I think that even after pandemic, people will maybe want to know more restaurants to go to, you know, with a vengeance because we've all been stuck at home. I mean, I'm longing to put on a pair of heels. I never thought I'd say that, but, you know, put on a pair of heels and have a glass of wine at a bar and, you know, like sit elbow to elbow with a girlfriend and, you know, sort of laugh and, you know, get that little tipsiness before dinner. And, you know, those are the simple things that, I love about traveling too, the people watching. I've missed people watching so much. And I, I hope that we're able to highlight these mom and pop restaurants and cafes um, so that when we are feeling safe, um, that there'll be a lot of um, interest in those kinds of places. You know, I don't think most people have the budget to go to Michelin star chefs, restaurants all the time. And I think those guys will actually be okay because they'll always be, they, you know, their business always depended on a certain um, sliver of restaurant patron. I think the people that I worry about most are those beautiful mom and pop hole in the walls that we all covet and love. Um, and I look forward to really leaning into those places versus just, you know, the home cooking, because we've all had a lot of that, certainly. When Taste Nation came out last summer, the pandemic was an unpredictable factor, um, but it also ended up coinciding with a lot of overdue conversations in food media about cultural appropriation and who gets to share stories about food. How much progress do you think has been made since last summer and what more long-term actionable change would you like to be seeing over the coming years? That's a great question. I think there has been more than progress. There has been a cleaning of house, let's say, that was necessary. I think progress can only be measured over um, a longer stretch of time. You know, I want to believe that it will be sustainable. You know, Bon Appetit has a new African-American editor who comes from book publishing. And, you know, I've read her letter, uh, editor's letter, and, you know, she seems like she has some great plans. And I look forward to, you know, clapping and reading and enjoying um, the new direction that that magazine takes. I, um, I think it was a necessary reckoning that I hope has a very long tail. You know, I hope that it sparks some deeper changes. And I think that is also a big reason for Taste the Nation's existence, because I, I felt like there was all this stuff coming out, you know, this vitriol, like I call it, about immigrants, but immigrants themselves weren't being able to tell their own stories. And so that's really what um, Taste the Nation is about. I always grew up in immigrant enclaves, even if they weren't in Indian immigrant enclaves, they were Filipino or Mexican or Barbadian or, you know, whatever. And so I found those places interesting and just from a self-serving point of view, delicious. And, um, and so I want those stories to come out more in publishing. I think that I really don't need another recipe for fucking meatloaf. I don't, and you know, I mean, 
or Thanksgiving turkey, unless you're just changing the spices, you know, and, and using baharat. I'm just going to name all the Turkish spices I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy. <laughs> um, so I, I think that would be interesting. You know, I always kind of um, fantasized about doing a cookbook of doing American quote-unquote classics, whatever the hell that those are. But, you know, instead of mac and cheese, having that mac and cheese have a different nationality. And what, the, what does that look like? And what does that taste like? Um, because to me, that really is is the epitome of uh, of how American cuisine evolves, and I think that's actually what makes if America is great, that is what makes America great. You know, all of these influences, and it's this sort of at its ideal, it is this microcosm of everywhere, and so hopefully the most delicious or best things bubble up, you know, um, that's how we like to think of ourselves. But we have to also be active in perpetuating that kind of culture. When you said superficial, that really um, struck a chord with me because I think my fear and I think a lot of people's fear is that it is just going to be a lot of superficial changes. And the reality is, is it's a lot of hard work for, for mm-hmm. that change to happen and for things to evolve. But it's hard work even for people who want to effect that change. I'll give you a very concrete example of that. A few years ago, you know, I would say at least 50% of the people that I have around me are either gay or lesbian. And a few years ago, I made an offhand comment at judges' table describing a dish, okay? Not describing a person, but describing a dish and just saying... I don't know, it felt like, you know, it felt like not a strong dish. It felt like a weak choice, like a pansy choice, you know, and I didn't know. I just thought a pansy is somebody who's not strong and who's weak and who's, you know, who's a sissy, right? But then I started thinking about it and somebody called me out on it, rightfully so. And I thought about it and I thought, well, where does pansy come from? It's a flower. And I didn't, I didn't make the connection that that is a term that is also used to make young boys feel bad, you know, and sort of call out if their behavior is a little effeminate. You know, I I just was trying to say, you know, I also constantly call dishes feminine as a compliment because I think, you know, there are dishes that look more masculine in their plating and more feminine. And I love to see that whoever makes it, you know, um, it can be as often by a male chef as a female chef. But, you know, so that that's something that I did unwittingly. And, you know, I don't think in a million years I would identify as someone who had a grudge against anybody from the LGBT community. They're too entrenched in my life and I in theirs. But so it really, it really involves a religious devotion to rectify. And we're not going to see it rectified in my lifetime or yours or my child's. But that doesn't mean we have to not work on it. We just, you know, have to try. We have to be on the right side of history. This is a little bit of a 180, but uh, you mentioned earlier that there's a high chance that most of America could be vaccinated by the end of May, which is very exciting. Lolly and I talk more and more each episode about the prospect of travel returning soon, which is getting us both so excited. Where are you itching to go other than seeing family when it's safe to do so? I want to go to Rome or Paris. The one big kind of luxurious thing 
that I and Krishna, my daughter, do is usually in spring break, we take a mommy-daughter trip. And for years, it was always to Paris, and it could never be anywhere other than Paris. And then um, because I was filming in Rome last year for the finale of Top Chef, I had her... Uh, come and meet me so that we could spend Thanksgiving in Rome. And now all of a sudden she's in love with Rome. And I lived in Italy for six years. I, I got my start in Italian television in Rome. And so I still have a couple friends there. Um, and, you know, obviously it's great to be much more fluent in Italian than I am in French. So that's nice as well. I'm trying to convince her to go to Spain, to go, you know, to Madrid because she's studying Spanish and you know, I studied abroad actually in Madrid as well, but you know, it takes once she fixates on a place. But you know, we had such a good time in Rome. We walked everywhere. It's a much smaller city, you know, so I'm really looking forward to going back to Europe. Are there any French or Italian dishes that you are going to maybe hold out on until you can eat them in their rightful place? Well, I, I really like a mushroom souffle, which I don't attempt to make because it's just, you know, no matter how good it may be, it's just, I don't know, something about the water or air in France, it just makes it better. Same thing with the baguettes, you know, and I'm not a big bread eater, but all of a sudden I go to Paris and meeting like baskets of bread at every meal and miraculously not you know, having it affect me. Whereas, you know, if, if I did that here in America, my tummy would ache for days. <laughs> um, Italian food, not so much, because it, except the focaccia at Roscioli um, in Trastevere in Rome, but um, I am a really good cook. So, um, and because I lived in, um, you know, it's one of the few things I say with without blinking and don't feel like, you know, insecure about saying, but um, I'm a really good Italian cook because I spent most of my 20s in Italy and I was engaged to an Italian man years ago who um, I luckily did not marry, but um, he, you know, living there and, and, and preparing, you know, to have half my family be Italian, I, I learned a lot about Italian cooking. So I make Italian food just as much as I make um, Indian food. If there's one thing to get out of a re unsuccessful relationship is Italian cooking, then yeah, I think that is well takeaway. worth it. And the language, I guarantee you, I wouldn't have learned Italian as well if I didn't have that boyfriend. I mean, it's very, un, you know, sort of politically incorrect as a feminist to say, but um, if you want to learn a language, get a lover in that language <laughs> and you will learn to love that language, you know. <laughs> That is like the perfect place to end this episode. Um, if people want to keep up with your travels and your shows, um, where can they find you online? They can find me at my Instagram account, which is Padma Lakshmi, um, at Padma Lakshmi or on Twitter. We have a website, but and you can go there to look at some recipes. It's, you know, PadmaLakshmi.com. But in all honesty, I don't get around to updating it. But there are, I think, a couple dozen recipes on there. Um, there are more recipes in a cookbook called Tangy Tart Hot and Sweet, which was originally published, I'm embarrassed to say, in 2007. But um, the publisher of that cookbook has been hunting me down because I think they've been publishing a few, you know, printing and publishing a few copies and they're sick of it. So now they want to issue it in softback and paperback. So 
You know, like that book, I, they asked me to write a new introduction and it wasn't because I was lazy because then they could have said new and updated on the cover, right? So you feel like you're getting... And I read, I, I read the introduction and then I called my publisher and I said, I wouldn't write anything different <laughs> because I talk in there. I talk in there. Either I've been banging the same drum, which I have, but I talk in there about... Um, you know, how the world is getting bigger and smaller at the same time, that no one eats the same food every day, um, that the beauty of travel is the access to all of these flavors and spices and traditions. And and so it is true. Everything I said 14 years ago is even more true today. Um, and, you know, I just very cheekily said, no, I wouldn't add a thing. <laughs> I'm sure that some of the recipes aren't, you know, as, you know, what you call it, groundbreaking as they, you know, might have been then because everyone knows what Chipotle is and stuff. But, you know, 14 years ago, Chipotle felt like an interesting thing. It is still an interesting, delicious thing, but it's a very much known thing now. Well, now I've learned to cook in the pandemic. I cannot wait to get my hands on those recipes. Um, we will include links to the cookbook, to Padma's social media, to where you can watch Top Chef and Taste the Nation. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor. You can find me at Lale Hanna. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram, subscribe to our newsletter, and join our Facebook group. Thank you so much for joining us, Padma, and we'll talk to everyone else next week. 